Guns, guns, guns. It's what we're talking about in Ohio this week, given all of the tragedies that have happened in recent weeks. And we'll be talking about guns today on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. Courtney, we're also going to be talking about a phenomenal story you wrote yesterday. Well, I'm glad I'm here. (laughs) I am too. Let's get going so we can get to that conversation. First, some guns. If we can't get records on how many guns are in Ohio today, do other measures exist to show that the number appears to be increasing, either steadily or rapidly? Lisa, the federal lawmakers have done everything possible to make it hard to understand gun trends in this country. Records are protected and there's so much secrecy. But there are some things you can look at that give you an indication, right? Yeah, we're looking at, actually, we had to look at firearms deaths here in Ohio to get kind of get a handle on how many guns are rattling around the Buckeye State. Gun data, as you said, is not made public by the federal government. That's thanks to the Dickey Amendment of 1996. So we don't know who owns guns, who sells them, who has background checks, how many guns people own. And the Dickey Amendment has banned federal research on guns and gun safety for 25 years. So the Ohio Department of Health since 2007 has been tracking firearms deaths and 12 of the last 15 years they saw more deaths than the previous year. 2020 and 2021 had the highest number of gun deaths ever in Ohio. In 2020, we had 1,764. In 2021, we had 1,894, and that count could still go higher. And Ohio figures since 2007, so most of the gun deaths are suicides in Ohio, 12,664 since 2007. Homicide came next at 8,052. Unintentional deaths, 229 and then police involved shootings were 189 since 2007 but that's below the national trend just a little bit we also find that ohio background checks have doubled since 2007 to almost a million about 976,000 in 2020 but see background checks don't always denote a gun purchase or how many guns that person bought but the best estimate we can come up with is there are probably about 9.6 million new guns in Ohio in the last 15 years. Yeah, the background check is is a striking statistic, but so are the bar charts of deaths by by gunshots. You know, we we've been talking because of the what happened in Buffalo and what happened in Valde about assault weapons. But in Cleveland, where you don't you haven't had 21 people killed in a day, but you get 21 people killed over a matter of weeks. It's handguns. I mean, those are mm-hmm. those are the weapon of choice for most of those. And the number of those that are floating around now has never been as high as it is. It'd be interesting to see if anybody can come up with a gun, a, a reasonable gun law that would somehow stem the number of guns falling into the hands of criminals. And get rid of the Dickey Amendment. I mean, you know, kind of, they they won't do research on guns, so we don't know anything. I mean, we're only we're trying to piece this together with you know various data. It's amazing how the lawmakers are so bought and paid for by the gun lobby because because their constituents are dying. People are suffering because of all of the things they've done to make that secrecy possible, and and yet they continue to serve the gun lobby instead of their constituents. Um, we'll be talking in a little bit about how much money they've received from the gun lobby. Like I said, we're talking about guns today. It's Today in Ohio. 
Why are some people taking offense at how Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley spoke with Cleveland City Councilwoman Stephanie House at a recent committee hearing on juvenile crime? Courtney, I loved how you built this story into something more than just reporting what happened at the, at the table. You made it a much richer piece about how black women leaders are treated in, in many situations. Thank you. I, I think it was important to put this into context. It it struck me that it wasn't it shouldn't have been a he said, she said situation, you know. So 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 what we saw here at a May eleventh safety committee hearing is Councilwoman Stephanie House start going down this road of questioning at what point in our justice system do we really look at the perpetrators of crimes and figure out why they're committing crimes? She's, you know, she's asked this of police departments. She asked it of the juvenile court judge. And she asked it of county prosecutor Michael O'Malley. Does your office look and see why kids are maybe pulling a gun on people and doing carjackings? Her, her, her line of questioning is aimed at, we, we can't prevent crime if we don't know why it's happening. Let's figure out why it's happening. And... She went down this line of questioning, asking Mike O'Malley if his office conducts these kinds of assessments. And, and Mike O'Malley says, no, you know, that isn't traditionally the role of the prosecutor's office in Ohio, right? So he said no, but she, she was making a grander point than, than saying he's not doing a specific slice of his job. She was looking at the system as a whole. And, um, and, and Mike O'Malley came. Let, let, let me interrupt you yeah. there. We're gonna, we'll, get, we'll get to the gist of this. But. Where Mike O'Malley says that's not his job, I, I think he's fundamentally wrong. When you're in juvenile court, the purpose of the juvenile court, the reason it was created, we have the second oldest one in the country, was to reform the kids, that, that you're not going to treat them as adult. You don't throw the book at them. You look at what is best for the kid. And everybody in that courtroom is supposed to have that as their priority. The attorney representing the kid, the judge, probation officers, and the prosecutor. What's best for the kid? Mike O'Malley doesn't agree with that. But, but if you don't have that as your purpose, you should abolish juvenile court. If it's about throwing the book at them, that's what we do in adult court. And that's part of what Stephanie House is trying to get at. This is about the kid. We should be learning more about the kid and thinking about the kid. And O'Malley refuses to accept that. So... When O'Malley was in this discussion, things got a little bit heated. Yeah, very much so. So Councilwoman House continued with her line of questioning, and Mike O'Malley um, started interrupting her. He, he, he ordered her, speak to me professionally. Speak to me professionally. Like he was, I don't know, it struck me like you're talking to a child or something. It was, it was weird, the tone there. And then he, you know, didn't, he had called her Miss House, not councilwoman um continued to interrupt and and there was just like kind of this back and forth melee but it it appeared to me now i'm sure the prosecutor would disagree with this but it appeared to me councilwoman house and a bunch of other folks that he was the one who went off he he took it to this heated land kind of first in the conversation he got really worked up at her line of questioning and in the days that have followed councilwoman house took to the council floor and said you know, this this didn't you know, I get into these interactions with men of power often because I'm because I have the audacity to do my job and ask them questions on behalf of my constituents. You know, she well, and don't don't forget, though, he also threw in her face 
that she had a relative that his office had prosecuted. It was such a non sequitur. You're at the table talking about a significant juvenile crime problem, and he says, well, I, I know why the councilwoman's doing this. It's because I prosecuted her relative. It was just the most inappropriate thing you could possibly say, right? Oh, right, right. She didn't raise this topic. He, he went personal when she's sitting at the table doing her job just like all of her colleagues are, right? And that... that that struck a lot of people as off base and very problematic as well. Absolutely. So you went and you talked to some other uh, black women leaders who have faced similar kind of discussions, uh, Amelia Sykes being one of them. And what, what was their general consensus? Yeah, this happens all the time when you're when you're a black woman leader showing up in spaces where you don't usually see black women. Um, you know, politics is is one key example, but Amelia Sykes was also saying, you know, black women in the C-suite and, and professionals in other fields get talked over, talked down to, and contend with this every day. And, and um, you know, it, 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 was, it was sad because folks yeah, deal I, with this all the time. Well, I, I watched the, the video of this, and I was stunned. I've known Michael Malley for years and years and years. I was stunned that he did this. I mean... The councilwoman was not being in any way disrespectful. She was being passionate. And, and look, right. she's after something we've been after ourselves for a long time. If juvenile court's job is to reform the kid, how does a kid end up going through the court 13 times and ultimately becoming a pistol-toting carjacker? That's what she's trying to get at. Where are we going wrong? What are we learning from these kids? They've been through the system. Why aren't we studying them in the early years before they're carjackers to figure out how to stop it? And that's a really legitimate question, and she can't get it answered. She had the judge there. She had O'Malley there. And as she's asking it, frustrated that she can't get an answer, he starts with the stuff, you, you should speak to me professionally. And I, it just came out of the blue. I, it was, you were in the room when it happened, right? I was, uh, I was at the office, but I, I was watching it live, and it, it made my jaw drop immediately. Um, it, 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 was, it was weird and off base as soon as it started happening. I've never seen anything like that at, at a council committee. Council members get heated and passionate all the time and that's what she was doing and that's when she was kind of slapped down by these comments but she responded to his unprofessionalism really professionally oh i mean i she it was it was so impressive to watch her throughout that hearing i mean she she's after something that's really important for the future of the city the the kids and while she's being treated badly she's standing in continuing to press for what she wanted it, 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 amazing thing you should read courtney's story and watch the hearing to get a feeling for what we're talking about the story's on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio by reader request a lot of reader requests we've assembled the list of how much money ohio politicians have received from the gun lobby what's the total big number and who are the leaders in getting cash from the lobby that has persuaded lawmakers to liberalize the gun laws Laura, it's, it's a telling chart, set of charts that Seth Richardson published today. Yeah, Seth Richardson did a great job with the story. And the total, grand total, from all gun industry lobbying groups is $580,000 since 2010. And I got to say, it's a big number, but I expected it to be a lot higher mm-hmm. um, when you look at the power that the NRA has. Um, and the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is the leader of that money. They contributed nearly $310,000 to Ohio Pop 
politicians. That's predominantly at the federal level, though. And the lawmakers who received those donations were reliably in their camp. They voted to block more restrictive bills or chip away at existing restrictions. The other big ones are Safari Club International. That's a lobbying group for hunters. They gave more than $90,000. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is a gun manufacturer trade industry organization pitched in $88,500 and Republicans accounted for the vast majority of those. Although there are some Democratic lawmakers that accepted funds mostly before the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. That's when Democrats were again pushing for reforms such as universal background checks and folks like Tim Ryan has um, pledged to donate some of the money they got from the organizations to gun safety. But yeah, I mean, this goes goes to a lot of Republicans in the state. Yeah, I, the, the, the number of dollars DeWine has gotten, it, it, it's very telling because he's the one that came out as soon as he got elected saying, I, I want common sense gun laws. He's completely backtracked. And then he signed. He didn't have to, but he signed the bill getting rid of permits for but, concealed carry. But you look at DeWine and he... DeWine only got $8,500 since 2010. I mean, that has got to be chump change to the governor who who probably rakes in all sorts of money. You look at House Bill 6, and we talked about First Energy all the time. We're talking way more money. And yes, most of this money is going to Republicans at the federal level. Bob Latta, a Bowling Green Republican, got 48000 since 2010. He's leading the state. Dave Joyce in Bainbridge Township, second most at forty-one five. But people like Larry Householder, uh, former House Speaker and uh, talk, you know, speaking about House Bill 6, only 6,000 donations in that time frame. I mean, <laughs> and in the meantime, they're voting for all of these gun bills. Jeremy Peltzer did that great story last week. We talked about how just systematically the permitless carry came to be in Ohio. And at every turn, the Republicans voted for it. $6,000 is not a lot of money. Although in a House and Senate race it is. I mean, they don't get the kind of dollars you get for statewide or but congressional races. over 12 years, I just, I can't, you got to be able to get money somewhere else. Well, that's the money that we know about. That's true. That, we're not talking about PACs. <laughs> that's true. This is the stuff that is declared in their campaign contributions. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you the policy of the plain dealer about publishing ads for firearms and what was the paper thinking in this big firearms ad that was published on Sunday, complete with assault rifles. And that's why we're all mourning these victims in two recent mass shootings. Yeah, it's, th this has happened, it seems like, multiple times over the years where there's a huge firearms slaughter tragedy and then people pick up their Sunday paper and they see a big gun ad and they let us know about it. Um, so a couple things, you know, our policy, the, the, the general advertising policy at the Plain Dealer is to accept firearms ads because the Second Amendment allows people to have weapons. They're legal. And we look at our platforms as centers of free speech and to start censoring those ads is something we're hesitant to do. Uh, we had a policy prohibiting images of firearms on the advertising that wraps the front of the paper, and we had rules about where assault weapons could go. Our president, Brad Harmon, did, uh, in responding to this latest set of complaints, say, yeah, we're not going to accept assault weapons anymore. Uh, our editorial board recently came out very strongly saying we need to reinstate the assault weapons ban that once existed in America 
So uh, Brad thought it would be hypocritical to continue profiting from those. So those won't appear beyond this week. There's an ad appearing in the Suns that has them because it was published a long time ago. In this case, though, this ad was put in and approved and reviewed before Buffalo, well before any of the shootings. And once it goes through that process, nobody really looks at it again because it it gets in the shoot. It's going to get published and it's not front of mind. So one of the things that that Brad wants to do, we're going to set up a calendar where a bunch of us know when these ads are coming. So on a Friday morning before the Sunday, it'll pop up. You know, if this would have popped up on Friday, it would have said, whoa, 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 that shouldn't run. You know, look what just happened. Uh, And hopefully it'll prevent it in the future. But it's a it's a dicey thing to start saying no to certain ads. I mean, there are a lot of people that think gambling is bad, for instance, right? Other people look at it as a pastime. Should we not run gambling ads or alcohol ads? Uh, it's some people's vice is somebody else's not vice, and it's a tough one to, to deal with. For now, guns are legal in America, so we take advertising for legal products. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, I'm going to skip ahead because Laura is a room mom and has, <laughs> needs to get to school. Mm-hmm. Why That's did fine. the announced buyer of two major downtown Cleveland hotels, the Hyatt Regency Arcade and the Renaissance Cleveland, suddenly back out? What happens now? Laura, take it away. When you're done here, you're done with the podcast. That's right. I'm going to the zoo today. Um, so we don't really know what happened, but in December, Toronto-based VM Hotel Acquisition Corporation, they announced they would buy the 491-room Renaissance Cleveland Hotel and the 293-room Hyatt Regency and, and the arcade, basically. And these both hotels are owned by Skyline Investments. Um, that's another firm based in Toronto. And Skyline had bought the Hyatt out of foreclosure in 2012 and the Renaissance three years later. And they're undergoing a massive renovation, $70 million of the Renaissance, which is a century old. They're rebranding it as uh, the Cleveland as part of their upscale autograph collection. So that is still going to, that is still going forward. I was worried when I read Sean McDonald's story that it, the work wasn't going to happen. But we don't really know why this other Toronto firm backed out. They just put out a news release and said they were pulling out due to capital market volatility caused by current world events. And if this world is anything, it is volatile. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I just don't think what's happening in Ukraine is cutting down on Cleveland tourism. These are two of the city's signature hotels. These are great. These are great places. And like you said, there's a big investment being made. Um, the, The explanation feels unfulfilling. I agree. And I mean, the Renaissance is one of the biggest hotels in Cleveland and the ballroom is used all the time for big city events. So it's a it's a very and it's attached to Tower City. It's a big part of the city. And so I hope that it is up, kept up well and that they find another buyer if that's what they choose to do. I mean, they paid $18 million for it when they bought it. And Susan Glazer wrote a big story about this last fall. And they were saying that the hotel occupancy in downtown Cleveland, she was using August numbers then, was 63%, the highest it had been in two years. And that was really good on the weekends. It was still lagging for business travelers on the weekday. I have to expect the way that tourism is this year that they're getting a good crowds at least on the weekends even if business travel isn't all the way back up yeah eventually i bet we get a little bit better explanation about why this deal fell apart those are desirable properties it's today in ohio and we'll bid you adieu have fun at the zoo thanks bye
Why is Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish making people wear masks again in all county buildings? Lisa, this seems odd. The, the, the mask mandates all went away and people were left to their own judgment. If you want to wear a mask to protect yourself, you get an N95 mask and you're generally protected. But Cuyahoga County is going a different direction. I kind of got to give them props for it. Um, they're basing this on the latest numbers from the CDC that shows Cuyahoga County at high transmission levels, and that's based on hospital admissions per 100,000 people, the percentage of inpatient beds with confirmed COVID patients, and new cases per 100,000 population in the last week. And once you hit that level, the CDC recommends wearing masks indoors. So yesterday... County Executive Armin Budish signed an executive order mandating masks in all county government buildings that takes effect today. Visitors must also keep six feet apart, no more than four people in an elevator at a time, and Budish used this opportunity to encourage people to get vaccinated and boosted. So, yeah, in the... In the in the face of volatility and, and ugliness over masks, you got to give him credit for, you know, instituting it. He wants to keep his employees safe. That's what he says. Yeah, it, look, we still hear from people that, that are beside themselves that there's not more care being taken because, as we've discussed, the coronavirus is spreading quite rapidly. We all feel like we know multiple people that have had it recently or have it. But but it seemed like the, the country had moved into no more mandates, that this is personal choice. You can protect yourself and, and that's up to you. Uh, this is this is a public health decision he's making mm -hmm. to say, I want to keep everybody safe. Uh, seems like an outlier. Courtney, you cover City Hall. You don't have to wear a mask in City Hall right now. Do people wear masks there? Um, it is a it is a personal choice. Handfuls of people wear them. A lot of folks don't. You know, Frank Jackson was was one of the early ones to put in a mask mandate, not just for City Hall, but for indoor buildings. And it felt like it stayed in City Hall for a very long time. Do you think Justin Bibb will follow here and, and do the same thing for city employees? Yeah, I, I'm really not sure because it was in effect at City Hall longer into this spring than pretty much anywhere else I went. So it feels like just lost the mask at City Hall. I'm not sure if we'll be bringing them back anytime soon. You guys both are out and about. How many, what do you, would you estimate the percentage of people you see in stores and restaurants are wearing masks? I would say 25%, but I see it going up. I actually see more people wearing masks in the last few weeks, you know, because basically infectious disease experts, both locally and nationally, are saying everybody's going to get this. I think that's the thing that people, you know, we're so tired of masks, we're so tired of lockdowns, but COVID is like running through the community. People I know that never caught it have caught it in the last couple of weeks. I know. The, those of us who have never had it are becoming a tiny minority of America, and it's right. kind of eerie to be in that group. Uh, Courtney, what about you? Do you see a lot of people wearing masks? Kind of like Lisa. I mean, I wouldn't say 25%, but I have seen more folks wearing it the past couple weeks. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why won't the Cuyahoga County Council pay for a study of the jail that was approved by all the members of the new jail site selection committee who were present for the vote? Courtney, this was one of two things that the committee voted to do. One is to test the toxic site where the jail might be built to see just what's there. The second was to get a up-to-date study over whether the jail in its current state has any possible use in the future correctional scene. But the county council won't pay for it. Why not? Yeah, they think it's a waste of taxpayer money. 
The first study cost a million dollars to complete several years ago, um, and they don't want to pay for another one. What's interesting is we've never seen that study. It was eight years ago, and it's 700 pages. And uh, I was talking to your colleague, Caitlin. She went back to read the stories about when this originally came out. And there was one story that was about, like, one part of the study. It did not get into the meat of it. And it turned out the county refused to release it, saying it would unveil security measures. So Caitlin is working to get that thing now because there are questions about how legitimate it was then. So if you're making decisions in 2022 on a study of questionable provenance in 2014, that's not good public policy. But maybe it was a really thorough study. Maybe it's loaded with good detail. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would argue that they there's no way that they should have been able to hold that back from the public this long. They, they better comply with Ohio public records law because this is such a pivotal document. They need to turn it over. Yeah, I, the, I, I don't remember this. I don't remember the study coming out. The jail wasn't as front of mind back then as it started to be in 2018 when, when inmates started to die in large numbers. But if they did a comprehensive study in 2014 that said, this jail is kaput, we need to get moving, you really have to wonder, what, it's eight years later, what, did you not act on this? Did you not think about it? What, what was the, the process put in place to get it going? It seems like the talks about the new jail did not begin in earnest until you and your colleague Adam Faris reported on all the horrible things that have happened there. Well, remember, though, like right as all that was breaking in the fall of 2018 and we were into it and we were fresh off seven inmate deaths, there was the beginning of this this MOU process that would have stood up the steering committee. And that was an offshoot of what they found in that 2014 story. So there were steps that, that had stalled in the years between 2014 and 2018 where they were trying to stand up a group to make decisions to, to lead to the replacement of the jail. And then, boom, we had the inmate deaths, and it just throttled that into the forefront but they were taking very slow drawn out baby steps as a result of this 2014 study it's just they didn't move quickly enough and then in the meantime you had a bunch of folks die and that really kicked well, it into and, gear and remember you know you had the folks die and then the marshal service came in and did a massive inspection that found the place just riddled with health and security issues, even though state inspectors had reg regularly rubber stamped it as being OK. What if the 2014 study actually presages that deaths could occur? What, what, hmm. I mean, what if the study says this is a dangerous place and if something's not done soon, there's going to be catastrophe, and that was ignored. I can't wait to see what that 700-page report says. Yeah, I, I, I'm really curious like, to get into the nitty-gritty of it. You know, one thing we see very much lacking at the current jail, even with changes in recent years, are the medical facilities. I'm really curious what the study says about the adequacy of, of the medical facilities there and, and what a new jail could bring. There's just all these little parts and pieces to proper jail operations that that study should shine a pretty big light on. And that study would have come out, what, just before Armand Booters was elected or just after, I guess. Okay, we'll see. Hopefully we'll get our hands on it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who's getting big money from the Ohio capital budget and who's been left out? Lisa, Intel is a big winner, obviously. 
Oh, yeah, they're getting a huge chunk of change from the Ohio capital budget. The total budget is $3.5 billion. It was released yesterday. It includes $191 million to uh, community project earmarks. This money comes from the state's general revenue fund. It also comes from other state and federal money. And it also includes $809 million in American Rescue Plan money, ARPA money. So, yeah, Intel, winner, winner, chicken dinner. They're getting over a billion dollars from the Ohio Department of Development, uh, $95 million for new local roads to where the plant's being built in New Albany, $600 million in onshoring incentives, $101 million in water and sewer upgrades to the site, and $300 million for a water reclamation plant. Um, other big winners, $100 million to the Department of Public Safety for school safety grants that they will give out. Uh, that's also ARPA money. Interesting, this figure was only $5 million for school safety in 2020. And so this kind of goes along. Uh, Matt Dolan is on the on the finance committee, Senator Matt Dolan, and he said, you know, they want to use this money for hardening schools, which has kind of become the GOP talking point in the wake of Uvalde. $5 million to Cleveland Lakefront Access, $1.7 million to the Cleveland Zoo Primate Rainforest Project. The Cleveland Food Bank is getting $750,000. Why couldn't they have made that a million? A million dollars for expansion of the Rock Hall and then $700,000 for Cuyahoga County's uh, Mental Health Diversion Center at the jail. Northeast Ohio is getting some big money out of this and generally we look at what happens in Columbus is favoring rural communities over over the urban. But in this case, you know, a lot of major projects that are important to Cleveland are getting some some big amounts of cash. May I? Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to jump in. Remember this year it was different because all the kind of stakeholders in Cleveland got together and submitted a joint request instead of going on and asking for separate things depending on who was asking. Hmm. So maybe mm-hmm. that's Who it. got left out? Yeah, who, what, what did we ask for that we didn't get? Does anybody know? I don't know. Maybe we got everything. Maybe it was uh, 100%. We got what we wanted. Anyway, good stuff. Good, uh, good projects all. Uh, glad we're getting some of the money that we sent to the state in huge amounts back in Northeast Ohio. It's Today in Ohio, and that does it for the Wednesday edition of the podcast. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to the departed Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>